Hey everyone, this is Michael. In this episode, I spoke with Brent Loken, a global food lead scientist at the WWF or World Wildlife Fund. Brent and I spoke about his recent move to WWF from EAT, an organization focused on food system transformation, as well as his previous work on conservation and development. Brent talked to me about his work on wildlife conservation and how he realized during his community-based experiences that protecting the environment is really all about food. Enjoy. This is the In Common Podcast. It's interesting, Brent. Um, a couple things have made me excited about this interview. One is I've been wanting to for a while with this podcast to have more of a practitioner slash professional orientation, not to supplant the academic stuff. We definitely have like an academic niche at this point. Um, but kind of in my own academic life, I've wanted there to be a stronger connection between academia and applied problem solving. So, you know, since I met you, you had always represented more of the practitioner professional side of things. And then when I Googled you recently, I see you're working at the WWF. Yep. When I met you um, a long time ago through the Resilience Alliance, you were running your own NGO, I think, called Integrated Conservation. Yep. So, um, but I, we never really had much time to talk uh, about what you were doing there and, and really get to learn about um, why you were doing what you were doing in these very applied ways. So that, that's definitely a main thing that I would like to focus on during our chat. And to get there, one of the things uh, I, at least in the episodes that I lead for the podcast, ask each guest to do is to give me their kind of origin story. And I, I think I've borrowed that from like all the superhero movies I've watched where, right, you get bit by a spider and then suddenly you become Spider-Man or whatever. So when I met you, I think we were both PhD students. You got your PhD at Simon Fraser in Canada, I believe. Yep. Um, and you're, you're kind of unusual as well among our guests in that you have a Wikipedia page. So, of course, I was looking at that in the last couple of days. <laughs> All the important things are on Wikipedia, that's for sure. <laughs> so, but Brent, I would love to hear from you. Um, the way I'll ask the question is, what led you to want to get a PhD at Simon Fraser? What was the nature of your program? Um, and then after that, we'll get into how that relates to your more applied work. And my impression was you were doing that applied work during the PhD and maybe you're doing it before, but I just don't know. So I'd love to hear uh, your version of your origin story as you care to tell it. Okay. So, so origin in terms of going back towards more uh, the inspiration for getting the PhD. Yeah. And sometimes we go farther back, but that's really up to the guest. Um, you know, I don't, you know, we don't have to go back to your childhood, although a couple of guests we've talked about, like how their their upbringing led them to want to do what they're doing. Um, but really kind of the version of that that makes most sense to you. We're, ultimately, we're trying to get to how did you become who you are today professionally and doing what you're doing? And the PhD is like a good anchor for that for most of our guests. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, my origin story. So, I won't go back all the way 
to my birth, that's that, that's a little bit too far. But I would want to go back to my upbringing in Iowa because you know I I was I was born in a small rural town in Iowa. Um, I grew up hunting and trapping and uh, outside all day, and I love nature. Um, use it in a very different way than how I use it right now in terms of uh, consuming it. I think at one point, and now it's more about protecting it. But I mean, even back then as a kid, I mean, I, I spent all my time out, um, you know, out in the wild, uh, fishing, hunting, trapping. And my dream back then was to study animals, was to study and um, protect animals and really try and make sense out of them. So, I, I mean, even even way back then, I wanted to get a Ph.D. Uh, uh, for this work. Uh, after my undergraduate, I got sidetracked for about 15 years where I went overseas and I worked in international education. Um, and during those 15 years, I taught chemistry and physics and biology. Um, I was a headmaster for a bit, built a school. Um, but I got a bit burned out on education and this idea of educating individuals within rooms, within the four walls. And I wanted to broaden things a bit um, and really kind of come back to my roots. And that's when I went to Indonesia and jumped away from education and jumped back into conservation uh, and really exploring, you know, how do we protect these natural areas and how do we protect these animals? You know, really, really almost rediscovering my joy and love for nature. But what I quickly came to realize during my time there was I didn't have enough knowledge. Um, I was talking to the experts. I was I was talking to the people that were on the ground doing the work that had the PhDs, that had the deep knowledge, um, and I was learning from them. And I wanted to be in that position where I had the knowledge in terms of how to actually figure this stuff out. And I, you know, very quickly realized just how complex this was, how complex it it, it is to protect a forest and to work with individual communities and to balance economic development with social development with um with you know human rights and also conservation it's 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 really tricky to balance all of those and it was at that point that i realized that i really need to go back and get a phd uh, uh um, so i went to simon fraser um i met a great supervisor uh and he gave me the freedom to be able to pursue my work in Indonesia, but still um, do it within like the confines of like a PhD, but a lot of freedom to be able to, you know, explore these, these issues, which at that time at SFU, it was, it was, it was a bit unusual, um, you know, because most of the issues were in BC and British Columbia um, uh, and very few international uh, work. Um, but. Uh, Who was your advisor? Uh, that was Ken Lertzman. Okay. Um, super great guy. Um, so I uh, worked on my PhD for five years. Um, still ran the NGO at that time. That's when um, did some work with like the Resilience Alliance and and you know others. And it was during that process that I started to gain the knowledge, um, uh, you know, about how to actually work with local community conservation and how to actually do this work. Um, however. Um, very shortly after my PhD, I stopped doing community conservation work 
partly because of how tricky it was to do it um, and how tricky I, I realized it was to be able to work on the ground with local communities and to create real large scale change in that way. That's what you mean, Brent, by community conservation work is working with local communities in favor of conservation, but also trying to scale it up. Yeah, it's working really at the local scale, working with local individual communities and really doing that grass work, bottom up movement in terms of empowering local communities to be able to you know, protect their natural resource, develop economically, to be able to do all the things that they want to do while you know, protecting the things that, uh, that we value, trees and critters and other such. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and that's when I made the jump. And, you know, one of the things that I also realized doing that work is that, you know, so many of the individuals that I talked to within the local community, their main concerns uh, didn't connect back to the forest. It wasn't necessarily about protecting the forest. It wasn't necessarily about protecting the animal. It wasn't necessarily about these large charismatic species that that we might think as being these 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 great, wonderful species that should be saved. but you know, from their standpoint, most of the conversations were about health. You know, it's about food and education, and it's about, you know, how do we get the same things for our kids that you have uh, to be able to send their kids to college for like a better life. And that's when I jumped over to food. And that's why I'm working on food right now today. And issues with food is because um, I realized that doing that work, that food is one of those issues that connects so many people. You know, it binds us together. It binds, you know, you can actually achieve conservation outcomes um, by focusing on food. You can actually achieve economic development outcomes by focusing on food. You can achieve health outcomes by actually focusing on food. Um, so it became one of those one of those glues that held all these things together. So instead of coming into these communities and talking about necessarily uh, saving orangutans or saving tigers, you could actually talk about issues related to food and at the same time, have the same outcomes of being able to protect those other species. Uh, so that's that's where I am today. I, uh, um, I worked at EAT for four years. It's an NGO based out of also Norway. Uh, and now I am working at WWF um, as our global food lead scientist. And, and it really feels like coming full circle in terms of where I started back when I was that 16-year-old kid in Iowa um, hunting and trapping and everything else and you know having this dream about working with animals. And you know here I am. Uh, but doing it uh, by actually working on food. So you, Brent, you mentioned earlier that you were kind of fed up with education. And in my mind, I was hearing kind of being fed up with the trappings of formal education. I think you mentioned like four walls, et cetera. And I think that's something that a lot of us in the field struggle with is the the burdens of of excessive formalities that can crowd out the real activities that we're trying to to carry forward and the outcomes we're trying to get done. Um, but then you had this experience where you perceived yourself as lacking in formal education in the field. So how did it feel having kind of um, gotten a little fed up with formal education and then realizing, okay, I actually need more formal education. Did you, did you chafe against the formal aspects of your PhD or were you in a different place by then? I would say I was in a pretty different place. So, um, you know, one of the things that frustrates me about formal education is I feel like it sorts people. It sorts people into what you're good and what you're not good at. Mm-hmm. And it does that from a very young age. And I see that with with my kids. You know, I've got twin girls. You know, they're six and they're already being sorted into are you good at math or are you not good at math? Are you good at this and are you not good at this? And I, you know, hear my kids 
um, using language that I find to be very frustrating in terms of uh, what they can and can't do. And, you know, that's one of the things that I, that I struggled with formal education in terms of, um, you know, putting you in seats, uh, you know, giving you a textbook and saying, you know, this is what you have to learn and this is what you have to do to actually contribute to being a good member of the world society. You know? Like having so, a social identity almost, right? Like, it's, it's kind of, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so Brent, you live with your family where? Uh, I live in Stockholm, Sweden. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of sun so, in your life right now. No, my God, it's dark all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what I did then is, is that's when I started my own, um, actually built and actually started my own school, um, along with a couple other people. And we had this opportunity of really creating this, you know, school from scratch where we could develop the internal educational structure of the school to be able to design it in the way that we wanted to to be able to get rid of things like grades and formal textbooks and, you know, how do you re like rethink education? And, you know, we, you know, I think we did a really good job. Uh, but what I, what I realized through that process is that type of education, breaking down those walls only works for some people. Hmm. It doesn't work for everybody. And that some people need the structure. They like the more traditional way of education. So my pendulum, you know, shifted all the way towards more of a um, non-conformist view of education, non I guess, traditional view of education to this more alternative form. But I very quickly realized that it can't be either or, it's got to be both. Mm -hmm. um, and that you can't just throw out your like formal education and saying that it's all bad because there are good aspects to it. Uh, so, you know, that's where I was when I got my PhD was, was I was back in the place of saying, you know, there are really good aspects to this formal education. And I think it was it was because of the place that I was at that I was able to embrace it in a very different way. But also, um, you know, I was 40 when I started my PhD. So I was also intellectually in a very different place in terms of how, you know, what why I wanted to do it and what I wanted to do with it. Right. Yeah, it reminds me, I just I read a book in the last couple of months called Range by um, a person named David Epstein, who used to write for Sports Illustrated. And the essential thrust of the book is that we, there's a kind of a cult of the head start, which I see in my students all the time. And I see in my own habits uh, and thought patterns a lot of the time is like, oh, if you don't get to X, Y, Z, you're not going to get back to A, B, C or whatever it is, right? Right. Um, so it becomes this kind of treadmill way of living your life versus valuing a diverse experience, a, a diverse set of experiences the benefits of which can feel kind of lagged and diffuse, which of course the human brain doesn't always deal well with. Um, but I, I really liked the book for basically arguing against what it does feel like this, like kind of cultish mentality of, of always, of, of all of us being in a race. Yeah, absolutely. And the earlier that you start, the quicker you're going to get ahead. Right. And, it, and yep. it is really embracing this, this mindset of one way of doing things. Um, and I, and, 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 you know, you see a lot of individuals that are definitely very smart and they're, and they're very well, or they've done a really good job when it comes to like formal education, but their worldviews and their life experiences are really limited. Um, you know, and, you know, one of the things that I did is I, I was, I, I had the, I had the benefit of being able to really explore the world for, you know, almost like, yeah, almost 15, 20 years before I actually got my PhD. And it was through those life experiences that I think enrich my PhD and, and, and makes me a much better practitioner today. Hmm. So Brent, would you say, um, 
that this distinction between formality and formality, as we kind of just talked about in the context in the context of education, also applies to conservation. Have you seen the strengths and weaknesses of these two ends of a spectrum play out there? Yeah. Yes. Um, I think the conservation community is still stuck in a pretty old paradigm of thinking about things. This idea of protected versus not protected. Um, uh, thinking about systems and 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 areas and species conservation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that we need to definitely shift away from that to think much more holistically in terms of, you know, landscapes at large, landscapes on like a global level how the forest and the rivers and the oceans and um, like the grasslands and all of these farming systems fit together into this global ecosystem that we call planet earth. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and once we start to blur those lines, then I think we have a, we have a much better chance of being able to think about a sustainable planet instead of like, you know, a sustainable forest or, you know, protecting this ecosystem or or not, because we tend to think about these systems. So it's almost like what's going on within the, this forest is actually uh, no sustainable, and and what's going on outside of it is is a uh, not. Right. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of the distinct like of the term paper parks that gets thrown around is basically representing a, a formally a protected area on paper, but then kind of who knows necessarily what's happening on the ground because there's often a a difference between those two. Yeah, but one of the things that I that I saw with my students when we had the school, when we ran the school, we were asking them to do some really intellectually difficult things and to really rethink the way that they learned. And it was really extremely difficult for a lot of students had, who had grown up in a more of a formal setting, right? Mm -hmm. um, and in some ways, I don't think it was necessarily fair because we were asking them to overnight almost retrain their brain. And I think that's, you know, when we think about how we, you know, train conservationists and how we train PhDs today, it's very similar to that. Um, so to ask conservationists to come up with a different way of thinking, new, you know, paradigms in terms of how we actually view the world, I think is, is, is a bit of a challenge when we've educated them in a certain way of thinking. Hmm. Um, okay. So I also want to tie this issue to your current position. So you're at World Wildlife uh, Federation, WWF. Um, how long have you been there, Brent? Uh, since March only. Okay. So I actually started March 2nd, uh, two weeks before this global, global pandemic started. Okay. And so WWF is one of the bingos. It's a large organization. Um, do you do you engage with this these types of issues in your current position in WWF? I mean, it's you know one of the stories that we commonly hear is that the bigger an organization is, the more it does need to depend on um, form formalities and categorizations to kind of document and make legible all the things it's doing around the world. Is this a tension that you experience in your current position? And maybe as a part of the answer, you can also um, we can segue into you telling us a bit about what you do in that position. Yeah. I mean, working for a large organization like WWF definitely has its pluses and minuses, but I came from a very small organization. So, so EAT is a very small NGO based in Oslo, Norway. Uh, you know, there's about 30 people working for it. We knew, every, you know, we knew everybody in the office. It was more like a startup NGO. Right. Okay. Did really, really, you know, really, really cool things. 
Um, but what I what I realized was that um, to really scale up the problems, that what we need are these large, like these large players. And and the great thing about WWF is it, is it is very large. It 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 has this global reach. Um, you know, it's got offices. I, I don't know how many countries, or it's you know, I think it's ninety country level offices. Um, thousands of people working for it. So it's absolutely massive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I realized that it was that type of organization, that large of organization that was needed to be able to work at the scale that we're talking about. And, you know, one of the tensions that I personally face is a sense of urgency, this, you know, the sense that things have to happen quickly, the sense that this decade is probably the most important decade facing our species. Um, and that if we don't change things quickly, that, that, that things are going to get pretty tough. Um, so that's why I jumped ship and I wanted to work for like an organization like this. Uh, you know, on the flip side of it, it's it's very large. It's hard to get things done. It's hard to reach like actual consensus on on some very controversial issues. And I would say food is one of the most controversial issues that there is. Um, what is a healthy diet? What is what is sustainable food? Um, and that's taken a lot of time to be able to uh, work with the organization on that. Um, so it's a it's a bit like the UN, but but I also view it that if we can figure out how to do that within WWF. Um, we can figure out how to do it within the world at large because that's kind of how the world is set up. Right. Um, so, so WWF is based in Washington D.C., I believe. Well, the U.S. office is based in D.C. The international US office. office is, okay. Yes, the uh, international office is based um, in uh, Glan, Switzerland. Okay. And is there like a Swedish office that you work out of, or how does that work for you? There, there is a Swedish office, so there's national level offices, that, and I'm hosted by the Swedish office, but um, I work from home, um, and because I am a lead scientist, um, I work within the global team, um, so okay. my colleagues are, are, are based all over, um, uh, Brazil, Singapore, Kenya, the U.S., uh, Europe, um, so, so I've got more of an international job and not necessarily like a national level job. Got it. So your identity at WWF, Brent, is as a scientist? Yes. So I'm the global lead scientist. So what WWF has is they have a global lead scientist for their various for their various practices. So they have a wildlife scientist. They have a, a, a ocean scientist. They have a, um, a, a land scientist. They have a food scientist. Um, and each one of those heads up the science like the global science program for that particular practice and the lead of the food. Okay. So do you, you, is there like a food team that you lead them like a food science team? Yeah. So the food science team, and this is, this is how WWF functions is there's national level food teams and um, which are independent of each other. And then there is a, global coordinating body that pulls together all of those national level teams. And I'm plugged in through that global coordinating body. Okay. And so as a scientist, Brent, what are your, your goals um, in this current position? Another way to put it would be like, what did WWF hire you to do? And so far, I mean, I I guess um, we've been living through an unusual year. So maybe this year is not representative of what you will be doing. Um, but what have you what have you been doing so far to achieve the goals that you've been set out for it to do? Well, 
Um, WWF has historically been known for its conservation work. So it's, right. it's, you know, it saves pandas, it saves tigers, it saves things like that. So I think that's how most people view WWF. Um, and sorry, very... Brent, I have to make this connection. Like, I feel like that's been my impression to some extent of you as being motivated. You just earlier in the interview, you were talking about you wanted to study animals and you, your work in Borneo was at least partly right motivated by wanting to save certain animals. And then you had this kind of epiphany that what really matters is like what the local folks care about, because if you don't care about that, then nothing's going to get done. So there's, there's things going on for you as well related to animals and whether that's what we should care about or not, or not, not, <laughs> we shouldn't, but like, you know, is, is that the whole picture? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love my time in the forest and I loved my, the work that it did on, you know, clouded leopards and orangutans and such. And I, and I, and I loved uh, that time there. And I, you know, in many ways I wished I could actually be, back there working with those animals but i but i definitely felt like i had to come out of the forest and and the only way that you were going to protect it was to be able to work at the large scale so mm -hmm. so, so so that's where i am right now um uh but it is interesting that although that's where i started that i don't actually directly work with animals right now but mm -hmm. i protect animals by focusing on an issue that people don't necessarily connect to animals and that's food you know, I think when people think about the food that they're consuming and they think about how it's produced, they don't necessarily think about orangutans and clouded leopards and tigers and elephants, but but it's absolutely connected. Um, you know, and I would say that 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 food is probably one of the most important issues that we probably face uh, that we could actually be actually focusing on if we wanted to protect those species um, more so than some of the traditional conservation efforts. Yeah. So can we talk about this shift? Like, so WWF has this reputation, right? It's got the panda logo, as you were saying, it saves pandas and other, you know, the, the term that gets thrown around is charismatic megafauna gets a disproportionate amount of attention historically. But so um, folks like you working there, is it right to interpret that that represents a shift at some point in the organization itself towards um, the approach that you were just describing? Maybe an awakening. I wouldn't necessarily call it a shift yet. Um, there are definitely a lot more organizations that are starting to realize that food needs to be considered. Um, conservation organizations, um, even climate organizations. Um, it's been pretty much siloed within the health world, and now it's uh, it's it's you know people are starting to realize that we have to start focusing on it. But this has been a very recent shift. Okay. And I would say WWF has come to the table a bit late. Um, but it's, but, but we've done quite good work, you know, and, um, you, you know, even over the past eight months, I've been there since March, <clears throat> you know, we, you know, we are now at the point where we are being recognized as one of the global leaders within the space. Um, uh, so we are, we have been asked to lead one of the action tracks. There is a UN food system summit next year, uh, probably one of the most, well, it is the most important summit that's ever been held on food. And we're now leading one of the action tracks for that. So, so that's definitely a recognition of like the work that we've done. Um, Sorry, uh, Brent, that... what's, what's an action track? That sounds like you and lingo. <laughs> I don't live in, I have different acronyms than you. It is, it is, it is uh, UN lingo. It sounds so nice. UN... Like I want to be on an action track. That sounds fun. <laughs> so, so, so the UN Food System Summit um, will be held next year. Uh, it's got five different themes, five five different tracks, I guess you would say. And I think they, they're calling them action tracks because the focus is on action. So one of them is on healthy, sustainable diets. One of them is on sustainable food. 
One is a one is on uh, sustainable livelihoods. So each one focuses on a different uh, theme or topic within the healthy, sustainable food systems uh, idea. Got it. Um, and so we're focusing on sustainable food production and how we do that in a way which is uh, which is nature positive is 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 a term that they're using. Okay. Brent, how does, can you make this connection um, clearer for, for myself and listeners? Like how does food connect to the welfare of animals that we care about? Well, <clears throat> you know, when we think about food production, um, I, I guess anybody living in the U.S. Or, or, or if they're living anywhere that they've seen large farms, um, you have a notion of just how much nature has been has been converted for these areas. You know, I was I was born in Iowa, and I was born in an area which is completely devoid of large forests and marshes and everything else. They've all been drained, and they've been drained for corn and soybeans and other things. And this is the same thing which is happening all over the world. Um, you know, and the leading cause right now today of whether it's loss of tropical forest where there's like grasslands being like converted, it's for food production. It's for whether it's palm oil production or whether it's produce uh, soy or whether it's produced like livestock. Um, and, 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 you know, about 70% of the impacts or species impact comes, comes from the food that we actually eat. Um, so that, that is one of the main impacts. You know, food is also, responsible for about 70 to 80 percent of all the fresh water that is used um, it's responsible for 25 percent of all the global greenhouse gas emissions that we give out and even when you think about climate change we think we tend to think about transport and smokestacks and cars and airplanes and things like that and we don't even think about food but 25 percent of the global greenhouse gas emissions comes from the food that we eat and how it's actually produced mm. you know so what we've really quickly started to wrap our heads around are, are these global goals, the, the you know sustainable development goals, the Paris Climate Agreement, um, you know, goals about biodiversity. We will not be able to achieve them if we don't start taking food seriously and start to integrate um, these into some of these international goals. Um, and it's and it's finally starting to happen. Thus the UN Food Systems Summit next year to lift it to the international level. Okay. So we've got a story of displacement it, it sounds like um does this have you engaged with the debate of land sharing versus land sparing with respect to that kind of displacement like whether or not we should have multifunctional ecosystems or whether we should just protect some areas and then really intensively use others has that been a part of the discourse so far a little bit um I think it will continue to be a part of the discourse going forward. And you know, I don't think we've necessarily landed on an answer for this. And, you know, mm -hmm. what we definitely know is that land is extremely, I, I, I mean, it is really a vital resource and there's not much left. Um, mm -hmm. you, you know, we used to think years ago that we had this unlimited land and we could just do whatever we wanted with it. But really, as you, as you look forward, we have very little land left to give. Mm -hmm. you know, so we're looking at a situation of, you know, we're sitting at about 7.5 billion people on the planet right now, maybe a bit more. By 2050, we're going to be at 10 billion people. Um, and we have to produce food for 10 billion people by 2050 on the same amount of land that we use today. Now, yeah. you know, how the heck are we going to do that? If we continue to convert forests to produce more crops, 
we're going to contribute to global greenhouse gas emissions. We're going to lose a lot more species. So if 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 we're if we're constrained or if we take those other agreements seriously, what that ultimately means is that there's no more land that we can actually use, um, and that puts severe limitations um, uh, on what we can do going forward. Um, in addition to that, to achieve the Paris Climate Agreement, we have to figure out how to pull massive amounts of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and store it underground. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about technologies that can do this, but there's no proven technology that can actually do this at scale. The only thing that we know that can do it is just to plant things, plant trees. Trees trees do it for free, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but that needs land. And where is that land actually going to come from? And are we going to be able to pull some land out of production to be able to um, restore nature and sequester carbon. Um, and if we do, then where's, where's this land going to come from? And the only way that we can do that, it comes back to diets. Um, the only way that we can actually free up land is to shift diets. And, and, and that kind of lies at the crux of the issue. So are you referring to uh, a term I heard earlier this year, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage? Uh, it's like BECCS. I've heard that as the main critique of it is that, look, this is going to require like a lot of land and it relates to the issue that you just mentioned, which is, you know, scaling up, which is ultimately what we need to do to address this global problem. Yeah. Yeah. The main idea behind that is we're going to plant a lot of crops that is going to um, store carbon dioxide in like the biomass. We're then going to burn that for energy. And then as we burn that, we're going to capture the actual CO2 that comes out of the smokestack and we're going to bury that underground. But the amount of land that it will actually require to do that is like the size of India. I mean, it's uh, you know huge. Um, and right now, that land actually is a, a, is it is it you know isn't there. Um, and achieving negative emissions is absolutely the elephant in the room that nobody seems to be talking about enough. Uh, but Paris will not be achievable unless we figure that out. Right. Um, so, Brent, what role do you think? Um politics plays on all this as an example of, you know, it matters deeply who owns the land. Um, cause land like most things is distributed unevenly and that relates to power, um, and politics. I've been hearing a lot in the last, I don't want to, at least five years about the global land grab phenomenon where, you know, um, private actors from wealthier nations come into different countries in Africa and and poor areas and buy up all the land. Um, So it's, you know, it's, we're in a kind of, in a way, a post-colonial era, but there's still these very inequitable processes going on. Like how, you know, as a scientist, do you, do you engage in the politics uh, of the processes that are required to accomplish your goals or, or not, or how does that work? I mean, these are definitely central issues that we need to figure out um, is what are the lock-ins that are preventing implementation mm-hmm. of action? What are the power relations that are preventing implementation of action? Um, so I think that you've raised an absolutely critical point that we need to figure out. And I I, I don't have an answer for how we figure that out. I mean, for the you know, one of the buzzwords right now, and there are definitely a lot of buzzwords floating around, but one of them is, you know, these game-changing solutions. We need to look for these game-changing solutions. Everybody's trying to come up with what this idea is. You know, but I think that a game-changing solution would really be just figuring out how to implement what we already know. 
how to be able to identify the lock-ins, identify and really understand the power relations and what's preventing the implementation from actually taking place. And if we can start to crack that nut and truly understand that in a particular place, that could potentially enable the implement the actual implementation of what we like the like the knowledge that we have in our hands. Um, and and we still haven't figured that out. So yeah. So I mean, as a scientist, I think all of us should be engaged, and um, uh, we should be working on these issues, and we and and we should take them seriously, you know. And I think that moving forward, the role of scientists needs to absolutely change. You know, we we can't sit in our ivory towers and 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 just you know think, or you know maybe some can, but I think for you know, if we if we do want to have a chance of achieving the ambitious agendas that we've set out to achieve, then we're going to have to come out of that ivory tower sometimes and start to engage yeah. in the politics. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of how I started our conversation. Um, you know, I I hadn't heard the term like game game changing what ideas uh, or game changers. Game changing solutions. Game solutions. changers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds good. I. I uh, in my own mind, I worry that it's de-emphasizing the importance of what you just what you just described, which is the implementation. I mean, that implementation slash enforcement, all of these processes of governance, I think are always the hardest parts um, of actually getting stuff done. And I agree with you that we need, you know, the bottleneck is sometimes feels like it's less um, people sitting in a room and having a eureka moment, and it's more kind of what you were focusing on when you were in the communities trying to get things done, or at least it's a combination of, you know, the epiphany you had when you were working with the communities that, oh my gosh, if we don't take seriously, like what the locals care about, then we're not going to get anything done. But we also need people doing things. We need doingful thinkers and thinkingful doers. And, you know, sometimes when I get kind of meta or reflexive on this very podcast, I worry about my own position as, you know, someone who gets paid to be a talking head about how much we need to start doing. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, I'm talking about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's yeah. a challenging space I mean, to be in. I, I, I didn't mean to drag you necessarily into this space with me, but it's something I think about. No, it, it is. It's an extremely difficult space to be in. And, you know, one of the things that I also realized when I was working in these communities um, is just how hard it is. Mm. You know, I, I essentially lived with the DIAC for five years. Um, I had a home there. I had a name within the local community. We spent months there. You know, we, we were part of the DIAC family. And, you know, what I realized, though, after nearly five years doing this is, God, this is exhausting. This is consuming and taking all of my time and I'm barely moving the needle. Right. And what I also realized is that um, it was all part of a larger chessboard that I didn't understand at the beginning. At the very beginning, I thought it was us as an NGO working with the local community to, to you know, protect the forest. It was a singular objective of making the world a better place. I very quickly realized over time was there were, the, there were similar discussions going on with the coal mining people. And the with the with with like the local community and the palm oil people, and 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 with the local government, and each one of these players had a different role to play, and the local community was playing it like a big chessboard. Right. Um. So so it's so 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 it's so it wasn't as simple. And and you know what I, and I I don't know what the solution is here, but what I what I realized and what I what I still can't figure out is how do we do this for 
the billions of local communities that are out there that need help because there can't, you know, it, it, it takes so much time and so much resource to sit down and figure out that what's going on in that particular community. Is it even possible to do that? Right. Um, on the level that we're talking about, or do we focus more on the top down processes that almost regulate or enforce things that happen on the ground? And that goes counter to the bottom up movements, which, uh, which a lot of people believe is a more sustainable way of doing it. Right. Um, a lot of people that we hang out with, or at least I do. A lot of people that we hang out with. And, you know, I, you know, I guess I would say, and where my head is, is I, I, I would believe more in the bottom-up movement if we had two or 300 years to solve this problem. You know, if mm. we had a really long time to go through the social evolution that we need to go through, to go through the, the types of changes that we need to go through as a species, make the mistakes that we have to make, um, to, to put in place the education in terms of uh, what we need to think about the world and everything else, but we don't have the time. You know, we, you know, we're being told that the next decade is the most important for our species. Um, so how right. do we achieve these, 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 these solutions that take a really long time to achieve in the time frame that we're talking about um, without um, uh, casting aside or disregarding the rights of local communities, you know, and, and, and I don't know. I, I don't know how we're going to do that. Yeah. I mean, this, this is, this is a great example of, you know, the principle that there aren't technical solutions. A lot of the times, you know, at least at the beginning of a conversation, we have to be able to entertain these, this tension and not just discard it. I mean, that's a good starting place. I mean, you're, yeah, yeah go ahead, Brent. With these game-changing ideas too, is is it is it does worry me also because I feel like people are, I mean, everybody wants to think that there's going to be one thing that's going to save the planet or one thing that's that they can do to implement that's going to change everything, right? And and, yeah. and we tend to want to focus on these like panaceas. And I do agree with you in terms of I think it's tending to divert our attention from the things that we already know. Um, you know, we might want to believe in carbon capture and storage, and this technology is going to save us, but it's not proven. Or, or, or it might be lab-grown meat, or, or, or it might be some advanced technology that's going to reduce methane production from cows, or whatever it is. But, but it's not there, you know. And at the end of the day, I, I, I think we all know what needs to happen, what we all need to do, you know. Just like we all, in our guts, know how to treat people, and and we all need, mm. you know, we all really know in our guts how we should live our lives. And yet we don't a lot it. of the time. And and yet we don't. Um, you know, so, yeah, I love the two of the terms you use social evolution, which I think is really, um, it's a powerful idea. Like how do we evolve new solutions? How do we apply from the top down? Like maybe how do we apply the right selective pressures to get, um, lower levels to adapt in the right ways? I also love this idea of, of being a part of a larger chessboard, you know, just being kind of literally a pawn. Uh, maybe not literally, but kind of feeling like you're this small part of this larger game with multiple dimensions is being played. I've certainly felt that way in my own field work where I felt like I was, you know, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. Um, I have felt blind to history and cross-scale dynamics in most places I've been. You know, what happened in this place 100 years ago? I know it matters, but I can't see it as a person who's only been here a couple of months. Like I, I've never been in one site for five years the way you have. And your, your, your story also reminds me, Brent, we had a previous guest on the show, Javier Basurto, who's a professor at Duke, who's worked with 
um, fishing communities in, in Mexico for a long time. And I know Javier quite well. He was actually on my PhD committee. He's okay. He's, yeah. he's, he's a great guy. Yeah. He's a great, it was, it was a great conversation. And I asked him, you know, about his experience, um, with a couple of these communities and, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of this, um, there's this really great anthropological quality to it. He's been going back to the same place uh, for many years. And his response, which he describes in the episode is there's this, um, it's a mixed response because he doesn't, you know, when you leave a place, you kind of maybe can tell yourself a happily ever, happily ever after story about it. We did this and then things got better. And now it's on to the next thing, which of course has been a critique of, of outsiders coming into local places a lot of the time. Um, and he said that, you know, you can't do that when you keep coming back because people die or, or new conflicts arise or, you know, things just keep happening. And, um, that's psychologically challenging to kind of realize that, that you can't get to like this stopping point where you can kind of feel that satisfaction and move on to the next thing. Um, your, the story that you described reminded me pretty strongly of, of his reaction to that experience. Yeah. And that is so spot on. And, you know, I came into the local diet community with a certain worldview that was very quickly shattered. Um, mm. uh, you, you know, and one of the things that I started to realize was, uh, you know, the same individuals that, that I thought were wanting one outcome were doing something else. Were the same, you know, individuals that wanted conservation were the same individuals that were wanting the coal mines and the palm oil plantations and such, you know, but I think that once you understand that and you understand your position on the chessboard then you can actually move forward you can actually realize now i understand what the game is and now i understand how to actually play it um you know this idealism that i went in at the very beginning i think isn't necessary you know it's nice but in some cases it can work against you because it blinds you to the way that the world actually works. Yeah. Um, and you might be wanting to force it into this reality that you have, or this is, this is how I want the world to be. Um, and it can definitely crush. <laughs> it could be soul crushing. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, especially for those of us and those individuals that have spent a lot of time within these communities, but at the same time, that is the world. And, 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 and we have to learn how to function in that world. And we need to learn how to change in that world. You can go back to the U S election and people keep on saying, I can't believe so many people voted for Trump, you know, but, but, but that's, powerful but infor that's powerful information to have, you know, yeah. and, 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 and we should be happy that we had now have that information that, that, that 74 million people, you know, think this way or have this worldview maybe. Um, and that, that might, uh, that might change the way that we see things and might change the way that we operate moving forward, which might be better. Yeah, well, certainly hiding from the reality, right, is is uh, psychological avoidance is generally not so not not, not such a great strategy uh, at the individual or collective scale. It, um, no. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm 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 as it's taken me a long time to realize that, and I have to keep on realizing it. But um, yeah. So I do like this metaphor of a game. I I once heard someone describe. Um, the goings on in Washington, D.C. Uh, in terms of a game. And the person said in an article that the people who kind of run D.C. are the people who know the rules, yeah. are the people who know what the laws actually say, because that's where the authority is. 
And, you know, I've kind of experienced this in my own job is that, you know, if you want to affect change, at least within an organization, you need it's the people who bother to look up the rules and know them and operate strategically within the con the, the constraints they provide. Those are the people who can change things. And it's similar in a community, right? The rules aren't often written down, but you have to know the norms. Yeah. If you're going to be an effective actor and the challenge with norms, of course, is that they're invisible. But um, to me, that's one of the great lessons. Um, I just taught a course on the Green New Deal to my students. And, you know, that's all about affecting change. And I think that is one of the great lessons is and it's hard work. It's hard work. It's grunt work to learn rules. The rules are not sexy they're, if they're written down or not. It's kind of like, OK, what is how does this actually work? But if you don't know that, uh, you're kind of blind. And I think the metaphor of, of playing a game uh, helps kind of pump that intuition for us. Yeah, and it's something that I have to continue to re remind myself almost daily because I tend to take things too personally if somebody says something that I don't like or if I don't agree with what they're saying or um, or if I feel attacked about something and, and uh, you know, about something I've written or said. Um, and then when I can take that step back and say, it's, you know, this is the game, um, yeah. you know, let's, let's get some thicker skin and, and just put your head down and keep um, playing. then, and, and keep playing it. Um, then, then I think that's a lot more helpful, you know, and like, you know, my North star is not hope also. I don't, I don't hope that things are going to get better. I, you know, I don't, I don't really place my, you know, all, all my energy and hope. It's more on just really discipline. It's, it's this, even when you don't feel like it, you just get up and do things and you just get up and put your head down and, 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 and just do what needs to be done. Um, because you know that the other side is, 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 is working just as hard or harder, yeah. um, you know, you know, against the same things that you're trying to achieve. Um, and, uh, and, and that side isn't actually slowing down or stopping. So, so we have to have that same, that same sort of mentality moving forward. Okay. That's both fascinating and a little problematic for me because my last question for you was going to be about hope. Uh, <laughs> I was gonna, you know, what gives you hope, Brent? Okay. So, um, I mean, I remember, you know, I have, this is going back to uh, when I actually used to see you in my life, at least like once a year or every other year yeah. for a couple of years. I remember at some point you expressing this idea with, um, in your own life with like exercise or other things is that it's, it's about just doing it. And I, the more I think about that, the more I realize how true it is. I don't feel like doing this paper. I don't feel like doing this grading. I don't feel like, you know. There's, there's not many things I feel like doing before I do them. But once I'm doing them, there's a lot of things I feel like doing. But I have to start doing them. Yep. I, I, I totally believe that. I mean, you know, a lot of people say, well, I want to get motivated, you know, but motivation comes and goes. One yep. day you have it, one day you don't. It's, it, it's not consistent. Hope comes and goes. And I think that when, when you hang your hat on, on those things, on those ideas, it's easy to get depressed. It's easy to get down. It's easy to not do things, right? But but you know that's why I I, I much more strongly believe in in just discipline, you know, eating right, exercising, and doing it when you do, don't want to do it, working when you don't want to, um, and, and just developing that mentality. And then over time, it just becomes part of your life skill set. 
Um, and then everything else flows from it. Hope flows from that. And, and I would say motivation flows from that as well. So, so I, I view it a, you know, yeah, a bit differently. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of this, um, maybe it's a famous quote from maybe a famous dead person that you are what you habitually do. Yeah. Right. This is how you make a new version of yourself and, uh, hopefully make a new version of the larger community that we're a part of. Um, well, this has been predictably great, Brent. Um, are there particular topics that you want to make sure we also cover? We've talked a bit about your work at WWF. Are there um, other activities or aspects of your current work or things that you will be doing moving forward, new projects that you want to you wanna talk about a bit? Yeah, yeah, I would say maybe some of the work going forward might be interesting to unpack a little bit. Yeah, great. So what are um, what are some next steps that you're going to be doing in 2021? Yeah, so where we are right now in terms of looking at a global food system transformation um, or how we feed every single person on this planet healthy food is 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 starting to take some of these global targets which which we know of and starting to downscale them into more national level targets. You know, and where the global community is is really at, whether you're looking at the climate processes or you're looking at uh, what's going on with like the UN Food System Summit, is is individual countries trying to figure out their piece of that global puzzle. Um, what does this mean for me? You know, so you look at the uh, when you look at Paris, individual countries are right now submitting their individual nationally determined contributions to that. Uh, that is how they're going to solve their problem. And we have to do the same thing for food in terms of if we're asking them to deliver healthy food to each person, how are they going to actually do it? And what are the trade-offs that they're going to have to actually, um, that they're going to deal with in that, you know, in that process. Uh, so the, so the work moving forward is really more the fine scale or downscaling some of this work and just saying, okay, what does it mean for Malawi and Tanzania and Indonesia and Canada and Russia and all these countries moving forward? And 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 if they do go down this path, what are the trade-offs that they're gonna have to actually consider? And it's and it's and it's not always easy. You know, we want to believe that there are win-win solutions that that by implementing this, everybody's going to be happy and healthy and animals are going to be protected. But uh, but it, you know, but in many cases, that's actually not the way that it works. Right. Um, another, I mean, this reminds me of uh, something that I've amazingly neglected to ask you as well, Brent, is is any of this work uh, being affected or engaging with the COVID pandemic? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, when you look at the root causes of the COVID, um, you know, you can trace a lot of it back to the same driver's or well, food. So the same drivers that are driving climate change, the same drivers that are, you know, driving biodiversity loss, are the same drivers that are behind what's happening with food. And and food is actually one of the central drivers of that in terms of how we actually produce it. You know, so if we don't change the way that we produce food, uh, if we don't change how we actually consume food, you know, we're actually running the risk of uh, of, of of more and more pandemics like this in the future. Which is terrifying. Um, which is absolutely terrifying. You know, so. You know, as we start to encroach on these natural areas and we start to mix uh, livestock with with nature and humans and we're putting animals in smaller and smaller spots or, or, or you know, creating these these areas where all these wild species and, you know, domesticated species are interacting, um, it's it's completely unnatural. Um, and, and, and finally, with COVID, thank God, if there is a silver lining, is that we've 
is that I think we've begun to realize that that food is actually front and center to it. Mm. Um, and that if we don't fix the food system, it's not just about biodiversity loss and climate change and water use and other things. It's also about increasing risk for these sorts of years to happen again. And, you know, we're calling this a lost year and I don't think any of us want to go through this again. So, uh, uh we have some work to do. Yeah. The, this distinction between underlying drivers and more proximate causes or symptoms, I think is very powerful, right? The concern in so many contexts and situations is, are we just applying Band-Aid solutions um, without uh, addressing the underlying causes of the problems that are leading to the symptoms that we see? And in so doing, actually punting on addressing those more underlying drivers. Well, well, that's what I worry about. And as we look at the amount of money that's being pumped into COVID relief packages, you know, that's the same money that, you know, just a few years ago, government said there's no way that we can tackle climate change because it's going to bankrupt us. And right. we don't have that kind of money. And they're dumping way more money into the COVID relief packages moving forward than what we were asking for back then. So right. the money is there, right? But even in the packages moving forward, one of the hopes was that uh, the underlying conditions would be to fix some of the drivers that we're talking about. If we're going to bail out airline transportation, let's make sure that it's green moving forward. If we're going to bail out certain businesses, make sure that it has certain requirements on it. And unfortunately, we're seeing that it's that it's not necessarily the case that that uh, there is a danger that we're going to go back to the way that it used to be, which right. which, which would be a huge missed opportunity, I think. Yeah, I mean, as hard as disturbances are, they are at often opportunities and windows for change. So. I've heard some discouraging characterizations of a lot of the packages you're just talking about, that they're not moving the needle in, in some of the more fundamental directions that we need to be heading, um, unfortunately. No, but there are some positive signs. I mean, the UK just uh, put forth a, a net zero mm. climate. Um, uh, I think I, th I think it's net zero by 2035. It's a pretty ambitious. So there are governments that are actually stepping forward and and, and finally beginning to realize and say that, that uh, that this is a big problem that we need to start that we need to start tackling it. Thanks for listening, everyone. The In Common podcast is now officially associated with the International Journal of the Commons and the International Association for the Study of the Commons. You can find more episodes and our new commenting series at your local podcasting app, as well as on our website, incommonpodcast.org. Also on the website, you'll find our blog, a link to our latest poll that we will discuss in a future blog post, and an option to give us a small donation through our Patreon account. If you want to support us here or by giving us a good rating on Apple Podcasts, we'd appreciate it. And feel free, as always, to reach out with any thoughts or suggestions that you have.